Those of you that were students back in the 60s and 70s will remember Mr. Natural of uh, Keep On Trucking fame. He was a shrewd and uh, often profane, but uh, more often very profound analyst of the counterculture movement of that uh, particular period. There's one segment, one cartoon segment I've never forgotten. It showed Mr. Natural standing next to a young man who was perusing a very pretty young lady who was walking by, and he said to Mr. Natural, Mr. Natural, is sex the answer? To which Mr. Natural replied, my boy, sex is the question. Now you stop and think about that for a minute, because it's still just as true today as it was then. Sex is the big question. The world does not know how to handle human sexuality. They're in a fog. They don't have a clue. They simply do not understand what sex is for or how to use it. The problem is that people in the world, in secular society, in society without God, do not have the tools for investigating human sexuality because so much of it operates on the spiritual realm. It's not merely physical. Scientists are limited to the scientific method. Uh, and by definition, empiricism means using your, uh, your senses in order to investigate uh, some object, in order to derive truth from it. And uh, human sexuality, I think, is like an iceberg. There's just the very tip projects. What we see is not all there is. Nine-tenths is under the surface. And you, you simply cannot enter that realm by the scientific method. The tools aren't appropriate. Reason isn't appropriate. Intuition isn't appropriate. has to be revealed. Uh, it was God, after all, who thought up sex. That wasn't David Lee Roth. Uh, it wasn't Billy Joel. Uh, it wasn't Hugh Hefner or Larry Flint. It was God. He thought it up. It was his idea, for goodness sake. Boy, do I ever wish we could steal that one back from the world. And, and since he, he's the author of sex, he originated the whole idea, he, he understands it. And he can tell us what it's all about. And, and therefore, we need to listen to him. In Proverbs 30, uh, there is one of these uh, Proverbs of ascending numeration, Hebrew scholars call them, the three plus one Proverbs. I'm sure you've noted that particular style. Three things and then one thing. And it's the last thing that's the bottom line, the most important issue, the thing that the wise man wants to underscore. He says there are three things that are, that are great. There are four things that are absolutely marvelous. And the word that he uses means something that's mysterious, something that can only be understood by revelation. He says three things are wonderful, the way of an eagle in the sky. And you'll notice in each case there is an, an environment to be negotiated. The, the eagle in the sky, he said, that, that's wonderful. I don't know how eagles can soar on those thermals and never flap their wings. Marvelous. A snake on a rock. It's hard to see how a snake can get a purchase, get a grip on a rock and, and move on that slippery surface. And a ship in the sea. He said, that's, that's, that's wonderful. But there's one thing that's mysterious. The way of a man with a maiden. And the next line says, the prostitute, and here I'm translating the Hebrew loosely, gets a Mac attack and she eats, and she wipes her mouth, and she says, it's no big deal. 
She doesn't understand the mystery of sex. For her, it's, it's no more unremarkable than eating a hamburger. Nothing to it. It's no big deal. But God says it is a big deal. And we need to understand it. If we don't understand sex and human sexuality, we may destroy our lives. It's that significant. Now, it's that issue that Paul is concerned with in chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. Will you turn there with me if you've not already found that uh, passage? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Ephesians, right in the middle, chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. Here's a call to, to imitate another, to replicate someone else in their, uh, in their behavior. You know, we, we all learn best by observation. Howard Hendricks used to say that uh, ideas are mostly caught rather than taught. So true, you can't teach ideas, but one of the best ways to teach is uh, to exemplify truth. And as others observe, they learn. Gary Wershing was telling me about a Dalmatian that he has. Uh, it's an old house dog, but occasionally he takes the dog out when he works his hunting dogs. And somewhere back in the bloodline of Dalmatians, there is, there is some hunting ability, but it's been bred out of them now. But they, they must remember something because this old dog will, will work with the other dogs. But he says, the funny thing is, uh, the, the, you know, this had to be explained to me because I know nothing about hunting dogs. But I've been told that the classic pose that a hunting dog strikes is not a studied uh, pose. They don't stop and think, aha, there, must be a, there might be a camera trained on me. I've got to hit the classic uh, pointing pose. What happens is that the dog smells a bird and it will freeze. And if it has one foot up about to put the paw on the ground, it'll freeze in that position. And that's how they strike that particular pose. But sometimes they'll have all their feet on the ground. They're just immobile. That's it. They just freeze. This old Dalmatian works with these uh, other dogs and keeps an eye on them and he can't smell anything. But when, when one of the dogs near him goes on a point, the Dalmatian looks out of the corner of his eye and he spots the, the hunting dog and he'll freeze. And if he's got the wrong foot up, he'll trade paws. <laughs> Gary tells me that old dogs learn how to hunt. <laughs> One of the best ways to learn is to watch somebody else. And what Paul says here is that we need to copy God. You want to know how to, how to live? Then copy God. He's a loving father. That's the point he makes when he says we're beloved children. There's some fathers you shouldn't copy. They're not good fathers. But here's a father who's a good father. He's a loving father. Copy him. Replicate him. You're already a chip of the old block. You're already in his bloodline. You're part of his family. You already bear the family resemblance. Now just keep your eye on God. Whatever he does, you do. And, and you'll be in good shape. The argument in chapter 5 actually uh, comes off of the end of chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God. See what he's saying? Forgive the way God forgives. Be as tender and kind and giving and forgiving as God. And walk in love, 
just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. That's what love is. You know, love is not a feeling. It's a choice of the will. It's a determination. It's a commitment to seek the best for the person that we love, no matter what it costs us, no matter what we have to give up. This uh, verse, I think, is set in contrast to 419, where Paul describes certain people who are callous, they're hard of heart, and have given themselves over to sensuality. Uh, same verb is used there that's used in 5.1 or 5.2. Instead of giving yourself over to self-indulgence, instead of being self-centered and wanting everything to center around you and circulate around you, put yourself in the middle of the universe, Paul says, no, no, just, just give yourself away. That's what love is. And he says, that smells so good to God. It's a beautiful figure here in, at the end of verse 2. He goes back, reaches back into the Old Testament for the symbolism that was often used of the sacrifices when they sacrificed an animal. The aroma of that sacrifice uh, wafted off on the winds and up to heaven was smelled by God. That's, that's the way the prophet spoke of it. And an acceptable sacrifice smelled good to God. It was a sweet aroma. And that's what Paul means. Whenever we give ourselves to someone else, when we choose to set aside our own rights and act in a loving way towards someone else, oh, that smells so good to God. He loves that. Maybe nobody else sees, but he does. It's pleasing to him. I watched a young man this, just this past week uh, who desperately wanted to watch the NBA championships. I could see it written all over him. Set aside his rights and play trivial pursuits with his little brother. And nobody saw it. His little brother didn't even appreciate it. His little brother seldom do. But God saw it. And it smelled good to God. Now, that's, that's the biblical definition of love. If you want to know what love is, then just, just watch God, the way he operates. You, you rarely in the scripture have, have a, a technical or a, a, a theoretical definition of love. Love is almost always described in terms of a functional definition. In other words, if, if you want to see how love behaves, then just watch the way God behaves. Look at him. Watch him. Can't go wrong. If you look at God, and, and the one essential feature of God that we need to emulate is that he's giving. He's forgiving, and he's giving, and it's the essence of love. And all how the world needs to learn that. That's why Paul sets in contrast uh, the verses that follow with the first two. But, you'll notice, verse 3 begins with a conjunction. But, do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. These things, Paul says, are not loving. And, and, and that's why God wants to protect us. That's why God proscribes certain things. That's why sex outside of marriage is wrong. It's not because God is a prig or that he gets mad when people are having fun or that he walks through the world snuffing out good times. That, that's not God's attitude toward us. He wants the very best for us. Scripture says there's no good thing that he'll withhold from those who walk uprightly. He wants the very best for us. 
not trying to frustrate you in any way, whatever. He, he, he just knows what makes for the right quality of life and what destroys life. And sex outside of marriage ruins you. Sex is a, is a beautiful thing. That's actually the term that's used in the Old Testament. When God said, it is good, about the sixth day, he was referring to the creation of man and woman and marriage and sex. And he says, it's good. And the Hebrew word tov means more than just good in a moral sense. In, in, in Hebrew thinking, it meant beautiful. God created and he said, oh, that is beautiful. And that's God's attitude towards sex. He doesn't want to keep any of that from you, but, he, but there's a context for the whole thing. And without it, it becomes ruinous and, 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 and destructive. Closest analogy in my own mind is a, is a little bird going out and working like crazy to build a nest, you know, gathering sticks and, and leaves, and making a nest, a nice soft place to lay an egg. Egg's a very fragile, delicate organism and, and uh, doesn't want that egg to be crushed or destroyed. So she builds this nest and she puts the egg in the nest. You know, birds don't fly through the air and lay eggs. It's hard on little birds. It's harder on people that are under the birds, believe me. First thing a mother bird tells her little little uh, girl birds, don't lay eggs in the hair in the air. It's bad for the eggs. And and that's what God is trying to tell us. There, there's a place for everything. Paul puts it uh, in Titus, everything, or Timothy, everything is, uh, everything is good that God has created, but it has to be sanctified by the word of God in prayer. This has to be put to its intended use. Every uh, resource that's given to us, our minds, our money, our time, our strength, our sexual energies, have to be disciplined. That's it. That's all he's saying. And an undisciplined, unrestrained use of our sexual powers will destroy us. Like eggs laying birds in the air. Wrong context, wrong place. <laughs> laying birds, laying eggs. I, I, I told you it was going to be that kind of a morning. <clears throat> Keep me straight, will you? Where was I? <laughs> Got to keep it in the proper context. And see, that's what the world doesn't understand. When, uh, when Janis Joplin says or said that the real thing, love, is what feels good to you, she was stating that what the world, the world's understanding of love. It's whatever makes you happy. It's whatever satisfies you. But uh, Paul says, no, no. No, love is essentially giving, not getting, not exploiting. Not manipulate. Because to manipulate or to exploit or to use people selfishly for personal advantage is always destructive for you and for them. I will never forget a young man coming up after a dorm talk that I gave when I was working with students. And I, we'd gotten off on the subject of human sexuality. sexuality and I was trying to explain why Christians believe as they do about sex outside of marriage. And uh, this, I pointed out that it's destructive. It's harmful. It, it impairs the growth of a relationship rather than enhancing it outside of marriage. And uh, this young man came up and he said, I don't believe you. And I'm going to say it just the way he said it. He said, I, I made it my intention when I came to school 
to take as many women to bed as I could. He said, I have slept with 29 women, and I am no worse for it. I said, good for you. How about the 29 women? Where are they today? Now, it is true that we can go through life and and desensitize ourselves to what we're doing, but we just leave behind a trail of debris and and destruction, hurt, pain, grief. And it's that that God wants to spare us from. And so he tells us very candidly what, what is outside the bounds, out of bounds, outside the limits. It's all spelled out for us here in verse 3. Do not let immorality nor impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among, among saints. The word for immorality here is uh, the word that's normally translated fornication. Fornication is a transliteration of a Greek word. It's not really a translation. They just took the, the Greek word and anglicized it. The Greek word is pornumi. That means to buy or sell. And it uh, was used in the classical Greek world of prostitution and then eventually came to be used uh, of any sort of illicit or unlawful sex. Sex that's unlawful in terms of Roman law. And in the New Testament, it's used of sex that's unlawful in terms of God's law. In other words, any sexual activity outside of marriage is fornication. That's the big word that covers all the bases. It refers to premarital sexual intercourse. Premarital sex is bad. It's wrong. It's bad for you. It's contrary to God's will. There's simply no way that we can justify premarital sex as Christian. It is not. No matter how much you love the person or think you love the person, it is not love. It's what the Bible calls fornication. This word also applies to extramarital sex, or what we would call adultery, where one or the other of the parties in the relationship, the sexual relationship, is married. That's adultery. That's a sin. There isn't any way to justify it from a Christian standpoint. Ron Ritchie was telling me a few years ago about a friend of of his who came in to talk to him about a a, a love relationship that he had going on. And and, uh, he began to describe it. And Ron said, "Uh, excuse me, aren't you married? And the man said, yes. But my wife didn't understand me. We've never gotten along. We don't even have a marriage. And I've got this other relationship going. And he said, it is beautiful. It's indescribable. And Ron said, oh, wait a minute, I can describe it for you. It's what the Bible calls adultery. That's sin. So it doesn't make any difference how beautiful it is or how fulfilling it may seem to be or how satisfying or how right. It's wrong. And as Christians, we can't justify it on any basis, whatever. Adultery is bad. Homosexuality is a sin. We do, we do not do the gay community any good when we condone their activity. We must love them as individuals. And we must care for them. And we must not reject them. But we need to tell them up front that homosexuality is a sin. It is ultimately destructive. And it cannot be justified on any Christian basis, whatever. Even though churches now are being established for homosexuals, and uh, a ministry established by homosexuals. It is not good. Gay is not good. It's bad. It's sinful. 
and ultimately destructive. In my own mind, there's nothing as pitiful as an old, lonely queen who's lost his attractiveness, who has no partners any longer. They just live in despair. I know. I've seen it. Don't tell me it's otherwise. I know. And so do you. And we do not do people a favor when we, when we excuse that behavior and overlook it and label it Christian. It's a sin. Incest is a sin. Bestiality is a sin. This word fornication covers all the bases. The only sort of sex that's legitimate, uh, the only sort of sexual intercourse or sexual activity that is justified in Scripture and is right and is good is that which takes place in a structure of commitment where a man and woman commit each other for life or committed to each other for life. Paul says, fornication should not be named among you. Not homosexuality, not extramarital intercourse, not premarital intercourse, not incest. Those things should not be named among you. They're sinful. They separate us from God and from one another. And they ultimately destroy us. Sexual sins are a unique form of suicide. As Paul puts it, because in 1 Corinthians 6, when we sin sexually, we sin against our own bodies. And what happens is that God will let us go. As we'll see in a moment, he'll let us have our way. And the end is always ruinous. Do not let immorality nor any impurity, that's uh, the word just means dirt. We would say unchastity. These two words are often linked in Paul's thinking and in his descriptions of sexual sins. Or greed. It's an interesting word. Same word that's found back in 419. When he again describes these hard-hearted fellows who have given themselves over to, to sensuality, that is self-indulgence, for the practice of every kind of impurity. That's the, the word for impurity that we find in chapter 5, with greediness. In other words, they just want more. And that's the problem with illicit sex. The more you get, the more you want. It never satisfies. As a matter of fact, it makes an idolater out of you. A little bit later, in verse uh, 5, where Paul describes, in this case, immoral, impure people. Same, same words that are used in verse uh, 3, but here there are adjectives rather than nouns. No immoral, fornicatious, or impure person, or covetous man, that's the word for greedy, who is an idolater. See, what happens is that after a while you become obsessed with sex. It becomes uh, your master. You're no longer free. I heard, uh, read some statistics recently that most men, and I assume, I hope, that the statistics we're talking about those who were not a, a part of God's people, but the statistics stated that most men spend two-thirds of their thinking time thinking about sex. That's obsession, as well as a huge waste of intellectual energy, as far as I'm concerned. What a waste of time to sit around thinking about sex. Doesn't do any good. All it does is, is waste you emotionally and intellectually. But that's what happens. See, it becomes an idol. We begin to worship sex. And it's all we think about. It's all we want. It's all we can talk about. Because it becomes our God. As Paul puts it in Philippians, talking about the same issue, he describes people like this whose God is their belly. 
Paul's typically blunt way of stating things. In other words, their appetites are their God. That's all they, they have. That's all they worship. Is uh, their drives and passions and, and desires. Paul said that, that sort of thing should not be named among you. It's not, it's not appropriate. And furthermore, not only should we um, control our conduct, we should control our conversation. There must be no filthiness, dirty talk, obscenity. You know, uh, one of the most difficult things for all of us, I mean, if we're, if we're really honest, one of the toughest things for all of us, is to, is to keep obscenity from creeping into our vocabulary because we hear it all the time. And we get frustrated or we hurt ourselves or angry or surprised and something pops into our mind and sometimes right out of our mouth before we, we realize it because obscenity pervades our society. You can't go to a movie. You, you can hardly even listen to uh, watch television anymore, although that, that medium is a little more controlled than others, or read books. Or hear people talk. Some people can't even express themselves without using one obscenity after another. And that's something that has happened within the last 20 years. I went through the, the free speech movement and the filthy speech movement when I was working with students, and I can still remember standing in crowds listening to these beautiful young co-eds standing in front of a mic in an open forum using all the dirty words in the book, and I was shocked, just utterly shocked. You know, I'm not shocked anymore. It doesn't shock me. Something's happened to me. I've become desensitized to that sort of thing. But Paul says that's not fitting. Those kind of words, what the kids call the F word and the S word and all the other obscenities that are just a part of our culture today. We hear them all around us. They're, they're a part of acceptable speech or even a part of polite speech now. Paul says it's not, not appropriate. Not fitting. Should not be a part of our, of our vocabulary because we're saints. And uh, as John Stott points out, a saint is not someone with an invisible halo and a heavenly look and a pallid countenance. A saint is, uh, as I said before, it's, it's, it's us guys. Those of us that are part of the people of God. It's not appropriate, he says. You know, it's not just for some class of people that are, that are ultra-pietous. It's for all of us. It's not fitting. Uh, nor should there be any silly talk. Uh, one of the Greek philosophers, Plutarch, used this particular word to refer to drunks, whom he said had neither sense nor sensitivity. It's crude, base, crass, coarse talk. Use of terms uh, for elimination and sex that are inappropriate in, in any context. But then he follows up with an interesting word, a word that's translated in in our in in the in ASB at least as coarse jesting, but that's not a good translation. It's the word in the classical Greek world for witty repartee. It wasn't a it wasn't a bad word at all. It was a reference to uh, intelligent, witty speech, coming back with a snappy rejoinder when when someone uh, says something to you. It's the kind of thing that we love to uh, be a part of, to listen to, and to engage in. Delights us. And Paul says that even that kind of talk about sex, when it's the wrong kind of sex that we're talking about, is wrong. 
One of the ways that the world insinuates its uh, system of morality into our thinking is through humor. I hope you realize that because humor tends to get under our moral censors. We find ourselves laughing at things that, that we think are really are profane. I do it. You get, you get blindsided. You know, somebody says something really funny, but if you stop and think about it, it's really gross, but you've already laughed. <laughs> you know, you just, just right under, the, right under the, uh, the guards that we put up. Let me tell you something, if you don't already know it. The world is not a friend to grace. I hope you know that. The media is not the friend of God. Norman Lear is not interested in your character, as well as others I could name. They want to make money off of our natural prurient interests. Don't kid yourself. Those people are not, they are not loving you. They do not care about you. They want to make money off of you. And they play to the obvious interest and obsession that, that the world has with, with sex. And they will do anything to make money, even if it means destroying the character of the human race. That's don't kid ourselves. That's, that's just a fact. We can still love those men. And if we had opportunity, share the gospel with them. But the fact, are, the fact is we need to understand where they're coming from. They have invaded our schools. They dominate the media. They are working toward legislation that is basically evil, and they don't care, and they cannot be controlled. Let's just face the facts. And one of the ways they get across, get their philosophy across, is through humor. Good humor. Chevy Chase is one of the funniest guys I've ever seen. I just fall over laughing at some of his stuff. But you, 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 you think through some of the things that are said in movies that he, he does. He promotes incest. In adultery, in abortion, in fornication, extra, in premarital sex, and all in high good humor. It is incredibly funny. What he's doing is teaching a lifestyle that is basically destructive, which, if followed, will, will destroy you. That, that, that's, why, that's why Paul says, look, this, this sort of thing should not have any place in your family life, in your personal life, in your life in the office. None of this coarse talk about sex. None of this witty jesting about sexual matters, but rather thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for the gift of sex. You see, the Christian message about sex is basically positive. It's not negative. It's positive. It's a gift from God from which we could give, we can give thanks and should. We're not saying, you know, don't talk about sex. Hush it up. The Bible is the most open, candid book about sex you'll ever read. God's not embarrassed about sex. He's brutally frank about these matters. We could talk about sex and talk freely about it. But, but we must be controlled by an attitude of thanksgiving, an awareness that all of this comes from God and needs to be employed in God's way. Otherwise, it's destructive. Now, this is not a small matter. This is a very serious issue, as Paul goes on to tell us in verse 5. For this you know with certainty. No question about this. No equivocation. No loopholes. This you know with certainty that no immoral, that's, that's the word, based on the root, to buy and sell, pornumi, fornication, no fornicatious or impure, it's unclean, unchaste person, or covetous man, it's the word for greed that we looked at earlier, which is idolatry, 
has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And we need to understand that Paul is not talking about Christians who may inadvertently fall into one of these sins or be trapped for a short period of time. He's talking about non-Christians who make this a lifestyle. He calls them sons of disobedience, which is an Old Testament idiom for rebels, those that stand against God's covenant and God's people. What he's saying, and and, and listen to this, what he's saying is that if you can justify a gay lifestyle, if you can justify a live-in girlfriend or boyfriend and live with it comfortably, you are probably not a Christian. You understand that? Those are weighty words. We cannot justify adultery in the name of Christ. We cannot justify premarital sex in the name of love. It isn't loving. We cannot justify incest, incest on any basis whatever. It's sin. And, and, and if any of us can live on and on this way and not feel guilt and remorse and not judge it and put it away, then he or she is probably not a Christian. And he says, the wrath of God comes upon those that live this way. Now, we need to understand what God's wrath is. God does not deal with immediate strokes of judgment. He does not strike us down with lightning bolts. According to Romans 1, what God does is just let us go. That's all. He just, you know, and, and, and in the end, that's, a, that's, that's an action of God's love. He lets us have our way. He says, well, if you don't want to live this way, you know, I want to spare you from a lot of heartache and pain. But if you don't want to live this way, I'll let you live any way you want to live. But you'll suffer the consequences of it. There is a, a law of inevitable consequence. We reap what we sow. And in the end, our lives are empty and wasted and desperate. And we're lonely and hungry and unsatisfied. Like the Rolling Stones, we cannot get no satisfaction. You want an example of that? It's John Belushi. That dear man, I, I, when I was in Seattle this last weekend, I read an article by Bob Woodward on John Belushi's death. You know, you know what he's doing at the end of his life? I'm not gossiping about the man. It's, it's public information. He was going from one friend to another, bumming money so he could buy drugs. And in the end, he died in the company of a woman whom, whom Robin Williams, who is not a paragon of righteousness, said was one of the most evil women I've ever seen in my life. He died in a seedy, crummy hotel room as a result of an overdose of who knows how many drugs. John Belushi was simply living out the philosophy that he espoused. That's all. His philosophy was self-indulgence. Booze, sex, women, anything. Go for it. He lived it. And he died a wreck. You say, that's an extreme case. That's true, it is. But, but let, me, let me tell you, my friends, that is generally the way it goes. There's no answer there. It's a dead-end street. And Paul says, don't let anybody deceive you with empty words. The Greek word means words that are empty of content. Talking about uh, the kind of information you pick up on the streets. He's talking about the sort of information you get from the media, from magazines like Cosmopolitan, and from serious clinical studies, 
which by and large are off the mark because they do not understand the human race and our human sexuality. So that's empty. Don't listen to them. They're lying to you. They're lying to you and they have deceived themselves. Very often these people do not any longer recognize that they're lying. They actually believe their own philosophies. But, but Paul says, all God's trying to do is spare you. That's all. He's not trying to take anything away from you. He's just trying to spare you. Now what follows in verses 7 through um, 14... And I just have five minutes, so I really can't do this justice, but I want to take a shot at it. What follows is a description of the way in which we ought to live in view of the society in which God has planted us. He says, Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Proving out, not, not trying to learn, as the NASB translates, but it's rather proving out in experience, testing it out to see if it's, if it's real. Proving what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. A lot of misunderstanding, I think, on this passage. The first thing he says to do is not to be a partaker with them. Now, he is not saying don't associate with fornicators and uh, with, with those that are in the homosexual community and with people who live a very licentious, uh, fast-lane lifestyle. He's not saying at all. He's saying don't participate in their deeds because our separation is never spatial or geographic. It is moral. Jesus, according to Hebrews, was separate from sinners. But that's a vertical separation, not a horizontal separation. He was the friend of sinners. So when Paul says, don't be a partaker with them, he's not saying don't befriend people in that world. He's just saying don't be like them. Don't embrace their morality. Don't buy into their, their systems of thinking. Don't be like them, morally, as Jesus was not. You know, there, there were a number of women who were prostitutes that tagged along with Jesus and his apostles, and he wasn't embarrassed by that. It gave him a bad reputation, but he, he didn't care. Because, as he put it, I came to seek and save those that are lost. So if you're going to seek lost people, where do you find them? Where they are. That's, that's all. You just go where they are and befriend them. But by God's grace, you live a life that's distinctively different. You don't partake in their evil deeds. And then secondly, he says, walk as children of light. You were formerly darkness. Interesting the way he puts it. He doesn't say you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. You contributed to the sum total of darkness in the world. You were, you were dark, morally. You were evil. But he says, now you're light. You're righteous. Walk as children of light. And then he tells us what it means to walk as children of light. The fruit or the produce or the, the evidence of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. You know what it means to walk as children of light in a sex-saturated society? It means to be good and right and true. And most people read that and think it sounds just like a Boy Scout oath. Honest to goodness, how corny can you get? You know what I mean? Goody, Miss Goody Two-Shoes. You have to be good. 
and right and true and pure. And so one indication of how decayed our society is is that we think it's corny to be right and pure and holy and chivalrous. But see, that, as Paul says, that, that pleases God. That's, that's what honors God. And we need to understand those terms. By truth, he means being true to the truth. We work backwards through them. Good, righteous, and true. By true, he means true to the truth. We accept this as the standard and the norm for sexual activity. This is the basis upon which all of our sexual morality la- uh, uh, rests. So we start with the truth. We're true to the truth. And then secondly, we are right. The word means be al- to be aligned in your character, with the standard. So we not only accede to the truth of the scripture, but we act on that basis. It becomes the basis of our life, lifestyle. And third, we're good. That's an interesting word. It means to be winsome. Because some Christians are true to the truth, and they're righteous, but basically they're self-righteous, and priggish, and prudish, and cold, and indifferent toward people that are out in the world. Good means to be winsome. To be mellow, to be forgiving, to be gracious, to be humble. A person like that recognizes that the next instant they could be, they could fall into a sin like this. And so they're humble. And they, like Jesus, are gentle and merciful with with the weak, as Jesus was with the woman caught in adultery. he, he He didn't condone her sin, but he didn't condemn her. He understood. He was tender and gracious and merciful. That's what it means to be true and righteous and and good. So the first thing is to not participate with these uh, evil works of darkness. Don't be a part of the darkness. Just be light wherever you go. And then third, he says, don't don't participate with them, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Now, here's where we often go, go astray because we think exposure means, uh, you know, pointing a long bony finger at people that are, that are living together or, or being rude and, and unkind and cold toward those that are adulterous or gay. But he's not talking about that kind of exposure. We, we talked about this word in our staff meeting this past week, and some of the men felt that, that that's a, really an improper translation because it, it, it connotes so much more than it denotes now. A sort of ruthless exposure of people that are living in sin. But while I, I see the danger in that term, I, I also think that in this context it's the best term because he's talking about what light does. What does light do? Well, it just exposes things as they are. That's all. This last week uh, there were five of us, I guess. It seemed like there were about 25, but there were five of us in, in a, a motel uh, in Seattle, and uh, we had two rooms, but all the kids and grandmother came into our room to watch television one night. He took all their clothes off and dropped them on the floor. Not grandmother, but all the kids. And uh, <laughs> there were shoes and junk and debris all over the place. In the middle of the night, I got cold. We had the window open, and I tried to make my way across the hotel room to shut the door, and it was in a strange place, and it was pitch black. We had those uh, heavy uh, uh, shades pulled, and, and I was stumbling over shoes, and and sort of railing at the kids in my mind for leaving stuff strewn about. And I thought, well, you dummy, why don't you turn on the light? So I just reached over and flipped on the switch, and I could see things as they really are. That's what light does. It just shows reality. That's all. 
When someone in your office begins to denigrate sex or they begin to uh, talk, you know, to demean women in the high and holy uh, place which God accords to them, it's just very simple to give a, a word of thanksgiving, express your own appreciation for marriage and for sex, for women. You don't have to do it in a self-righteous way. And when people see the way you treat your wife, your kindness to her, and and your love for her and your shows of, of affection in, in, in public that exposes the darkness around you. People begin to see it. And, and they're drawn to it. As a matter of fact, I don't have time to elaborate, but what Paul says is that when you expose the, the darkness, it becomes light. That's how people are drawn to Christ. One of the most effective evangelistic tools I know is simply to be light. To let your light shine, as, as the little song goes. Be good and right and true wherever you go. You don't have to be condemning of others. Just live out the light. And tell people where, your, where the power comes from. Letting your light shine is not merely a matter of character and conduct. It's also a matter of truth. You have to say something. But it can be said gently and graciously and said in such a way that it's not condemning, inherently condemning, but... But nevertheless, people feel condemned because they see themselves for what they are. They see the shallowness of the commercial concept of sex that they have and the poor notion of, of what marriage is and what it's intended to be. And, and they start thinking there has to be something better. And these are the people that come around and say, where do I go from here? Where do I find help? What must I do to be saved? Now, I don't have time to, 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 to say anything more except that Paul goes on in verse 15 and 16 to say, Redeem the time because the days are evil. I, I, I read that verse for years as though it said, Redeem the time because the days are short. I thought that was a mandate to get with it because the Lord's coming back soon, but that's not what the passage says. It says, Redeem the time because the days are evil. In other words, evil days days of opportunity. When the world starts to come unglued and when people's concept of love and sex and marriage is so marred and distorted they, they hardly know what to do with it, that's not a time to panic. That's a time to redeem, to buy it up. Because people living in that society are by and large empty and frustrated and unsatisfied and they are looking for help. And we have, frankly, the only help that's available. Now that sounds pompous, but you know I'm not saying that Christians have the only help available. I'm saying that the Bible is the revelation about sex and its significance and the meaning of human sexuality. God has told us, and if we take this book seriously, we've got something to say to our world. So buy up the time. Don't buy into the world system of thinking. You, you can't isolate yourself from the world. It's all around you. In the air, every rock musician you hear, every television program you watch, every movie you go to, these subtle attacks upon the integrity of our faith and our belief and purity. And it's very easy to get undermined. So you don't, don't partake of their evil deeds. But wherever you are, be a, a source of light. Be light. And by that means God will use you to bring many to the light. Let's pray. Would you take a minute just to think about your own conduct, 
my conduct. In our conversation, this is an area where all of us, uh, all of us feel that we have, uh, we've not arrived. And so we simply need to confess the sins of the past and forget them and go on. But perhaps uh, by your own choice right now, you're in a situation that you know is dead wrong and destructive, or it's trending in that direction. You may need to, to go out of here this afternoon and make a phone call and, and irrevocably cut off a relationship that you know is wrong. Or pack your bags and move out of a situation you know is wrong. And it may hurt. It may hurt a lot. But you know that ultimately the, the greater hurt is to continue. Would you confess that as sin? For that's what it is. And judge it and put it away. Thank God for his forgiveness. And then choose righteousness, no matter what it costs you. Our Lord said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It just seems to me that impurity always obscures our vision of God. We don't know him. We don't see him. We don't understand him. We're confused. But if we're pure in heart, we can see God as he is. Lord Jesus, none of us can say uh, that we've done very well in this regard. We all need help. The assaults upon our integrity and our personal righteousness are severe and unending. But we thank you that there's grace to rise again when we fall and dust ourselves off and go on and walk with you. And be becoming an imitator of you, as, as you've told us. We would, would like to be loving people, giving and forgiving, and ask for the grace to do so. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.